Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 44, The Shipwrecked Sailor, in which we recount one of the most enduring literary pieces ever composed by an Egyptian scribe. Part adventure tale, part myth, and part philosophical treatise, The Shipwrecked Sailor is a complex tale deserving its own episode. The year is approximately 1868 BCE. This episode is self-contained, dealing with one topic and one topic only. It is not certain exactly when the shipwrecked sailor was composed, but it was sometime in the Middle Kingdom. The narrator also goes out of his way to avoid naming any king, any individual, or any reference point that would give the story a date in history or myth. This is intentional. The story is closer to an adventure tale than a historical account, and it is not intended to reflect any particular period. It is meant to be eternal, relevant to any age and to any people. This sets it apart from the three or four stories we have encountered so far. The tale of Khufu and the magicians, for instance, was set in the reign of Khufu. It retroactively foretold the rise of the fifth dynasty, and justified their assumption of power after the fourth came to its end. Then there's the tale of Sinue, which gives an account of the beginning of the twelfth dynasty, with the murder of Amenemhat I and the succession of his son to power. The story, while splendidly composed, was still set in a specific era, and thus it was closer to historical fiction than strict adventure tale. But the shipwrecked sailor? Ah... This is a tale for the ages. It bears similarities to stories as diverse as the adventures of Sinbad from the Thousand and One Nights of Arabian Storytelling, and the epic poem The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It is also a damned nuisance to translate. Because of its intentionally simple language, the tale is often used as an introductory text for undergraduate students beginning their study of Egyptian hieroglyphs. But it does mean that any Egyptologist is long familiar with the text, and somewhat sick of it by the time they reach postgraduate research. Which is a shame, because the story has quite a few merits, as we'll see. The tale is told as a narrator's reflection, and begins with a ship returning to Egypt from a journey up the Nile. The captain is impatient to reach his destination, but his first mate, the protagonist, whom I will refer to as the sailor, offers the captain some advice. Quote, the wise sailor said, Let thy heart be satisfied, commander, for we have now reached home. The mooring post has been driven in, and the bowline has been cast ashore. Praise has been offered, and the god has been thanked. Every man embraces his comrade. Our shipmates have returned safe and sound without any loss to our expedition. After we reached the limits of Wawat, and passed the islands of Kush, see, we are returning safely, and reaching our land. Listen to me, Commander. 
I am not exaggerating. Wash up and place water on your fingers so that you can reply when you are questioned, so that you can speak to the king with confidence, so that you can answer him without stammering. The speech of a man can save him, and his words can cause others to have indulgence for him. But do as you wish. Speaking to you is tiresome. End quote. The story, essentially, opens at the end of the tale, with the sailor having already completed his trials, and now recounting them for the benefit of others. This is an absolutely classic opening, that does two things. Firstly, it gives you the conclusion of the story right away, so that you can focus on the lessons that will be conveyed. The expedition to the south seems to have been somewhat unsatisfactory, for the sailor is trying to comfort his commander and reassure him that he will be received favourably if he has confidence. He also repeats that little mantra of the 12th dynasty, good speech brings good rewards and benefits its speaker. The sailor counsels his captain to patience, and reminds him that their return is a blessing, for they have travelled far to the south into Nubia and Kush, which are, respectively, northern and southern Sudan. In effect, it opens with a mini-story, which is designed purely to introduce the true meat of the tale. In some circles, this is known as the exposition, and is usually found in the first act of a film, play, or classically structured piece of literature. It is also a very common opening for seafaring tales. The idea being that a journey upon the oceans is a trial that grants wisdom. Wisdom must then be passed on to those who remain on the land, in order to justify its acquisition and the sailor's safe return. So, right out of the gate, this is a didactic tale. In other words, it is intended to educate, and we're going to learn some things about life from the ancient Egyptian perspective. The sailor now begins his story. Quote, now I shall tell you of something relevant, which happened to me. I went down to the mining region for the king, which is probably in eastern Nubia. I travelled on the Red Sea, in a ship 120 cubits long and 40 cubits wide. There were 120 sailors aboard, the very best of Egypt. Whether they looked at the sky or looked at the land, their hearts were braver than lions. They could foretell a storm before it came and a tempest before it happened. But a storm came up while we were on the Red Sea, before we could touch land. The wind picked up and howled, and there was a wave of eight cubits. I grasped the mast, but the ship died, and of the 120 men who were in it, not a single one survived. I was placed on an island by a wave, and I spent three days alone, with only my heart as my companion. I lay down in the shelter of a wood, and I embraced the shade." End quote. No tale of the sea would be complete without a storm. You could be circumnavigating the globe, hunting a whale, chasing an enemy ship, or transporting your family's zoo animals from India to America. But there has to be a storm. It is just a rule of seafaring storytelling. The storm arises for two reasons. The first of which is to punish the arrogance of the 120 sailors who thought that they could foretell the weather. When a sailor talks about this, he says, they could foretell a storm before it came. In other words, he excuses himself from their mistake and acknowledges his own ignorance. 
This, according to Harvard professor of Egyptology, Peter Manuelian, is the reason why the sailor is the only survivor of the shipwreck. He did not assume he could foretell the future, and so was not punished like his overconfident comrades. So the storm is at least partly a moral device. A reminder that we should not assume we can foretell the future, but to be prepared for any eventuality. Of course, the storm is also a plot device, to get the sailor to his proper destination, which is the island. He is washed up on the shore, alone and friendless. He says the shadow covered him, which is possibly a reference to despair or depression at his circumstances, rather than just literal shade. But then he recovers something of his will, motivated by the very best of encouragements, hunger. Quote, Then I stretched my legs, to find something I could put in my mouth. I found figs and grapes, and all kinds of good vegetables, sycamore figs, cucumbers as if they had been cultivated, fish and fowl. There was nothing that was not in the island. I gorged myself, and I put some on the ground, because of the abundance in my hands. I lit a fire, and I made a burnt offering to the gods. End quote. This is a stereotypical island of paradise. It's the sort of place you might never want to leave. There's all the food you can want, a splendid bit of solitude, and probably a quite nice environment. For the sailor, this kind of abundance is probably greater than any he's ever experienced. For he is not a wealthy man, and the foods he describes would be more commonly found on elite estates than the farms of the poor. But before he can succumb to temptation, the sailor meets the island's resident. Quote, Now I heard the sound of thunder, and I thought it was a wave of the ocean. The trees were shaking, and the ground was quaking. When I uncovered my face, I found it was a serpent approaching. He was thirty cubits long, which is about fifteen meters or fifty-five feet, and his beard was longer than two cubits. End quote. This is a huge snake, which, as you can guess, means he is a supernatural one. Indeed, the snake is the king of this island, as the description suggests. He sports a beard, which should be imagined as the braided beard like those seen on royal coffins or the mask of Tutankhamun. It is a ceremonial affectation of royalty, and not worn by the commoner. The snake is essentially the equal of an Egyptian ruler, and thus a divine being. Quote, his body was covered with gold, and his eyebrows were lapis lazuli, and he was coiled up on his front. He opened his mouth to me while I was prostrate upon my belly. He said to me, Who has brought you, little man? Who has brought you? If you delay in telling me who has brought you to this island, I shall have you turned to ashes, to something invisible. He spoke to me, but I could not hear. While I was in front of him, I did not know myself, which might mean the sailor was paralyzed with fear. Then he picked me up in his mouth and took me to his resting place. He set me down without harming me. I was intact. End quote. The combination of the snake's physical attributes, length, royal beard, golden skin, lapis lazuli eyebrows, give him a decidedly otherworldly aspect. He is not really part of our reality. And so some Egyptologists believe that the sailor has not landed on an island so much as reached a different part of the cosmos. In other words, he has entered divine lands, the realm of magic, and the snake is its representative. Quote, 
The snake opened his mouth to me while I was upon my belly. He said to me, Who has brought you, little one, to this island of the Red Sea, the two sides of which are under water? Then I was able to answer him, with my arms bent before him. I said, I am one who came down to the mining country for the king, in a ship, and a storm came, and I was placed on this island by a wave. Then the snake said to me, Do not fear, little one, do not fear, for you have reached me. See, the God has allowed you to live. He has brought you to this island of the spirit. There is nothing that is not in this island. It is filled with all wonderful things. End quote. The serpent is a kind god, a protective one. In this sense, he is quite similar to the cobra goddess who sits atop the crown of Egyptian kings. Serpents, although dangerous, are also protective to the Egyptians. This one simply happens to be huge and ruling a supernatural island filled with abundance. The serpent continues, reaching an important thematic point. Quote, See, you shall spend month after month until you finish four months upon this island. Then a boat shall come from the palace with sailors whom you know. You shall go with them to the palace and you will die in your hometown. How joyful is one who relates what he has experienced after painful matters have passed by. End quote. If the intro didn't confirm for you that the sailor will make it out safe and sound, the snake reminds you here. Again, it's a plot device. The point is what the sailor learns. And it also gives a counterpoint to the arrogant sailors who drowned earlier. The snake, being a god, is indeed able to foretell the future, and he can do so in confidence. This is probably the most important passage in the story, for it contains two essential themes. Firstly, the serpent is able to predict the future safely. This puts him in stark contrast to the shipmates who died for their arrogance and overconfidence. So the tale subtly reinforces the notion of divine power, and the fact that gods have rights and prerogatives that humanity must not try to appropriate. The lesson, of course, is to leave certain things in the hands of the god. In this case, the future. The second theme is the idea of imparting wisdom and experience. The snake tells the sailor to relate his experiences once he gets home, and to share what he has learned. This is storytelling 101 in some respects. Like in the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, it is essential that a seafaring protagonist share his journey with others, that they might learn the lessons without braving the ocean itself. Now we get a third story where the snake recounts a major incident in its own past and how he came through it. Quote, I shall now relate to you something similar, which took place on this island when I was upon it with my siblings, including children. A star fell, possibly a meteorite, and because of this, my kin went up in flames. It happened utterly, but I was not with them when they burned. I was not among them. Then I died inside for them, when I found them as a single heap of corpses. If you would be brave, and your heart strong, you will fill your arms with your children. You will kiss your wife, and you will see your house. It is better than anything. End quote. The serpent's little story is a simple tale of grief. The serpent loses his family to great calamity, but manages to survive the despair and keep on living. The serpent recounts the tale for a very simple reason. 
to educate the sailor, to show him another perspective on life and what calamity can entail. Although the sailor has been shipwrecked, he will survive if his heart is strong, and, unlike the serpent, he will embrace his family once more. Sometimes, you just need to share your grief. After all, sharing is caring. The sailor now resumes his own story. Quote, I was stretched out upon my belly, and I touched the ground in his presence. But I said to him, I shall relate your might to the king. I shall have him learn of your greatness. I shall bring to you laudanum and oil, spices, balsam, and incense from the temples, with which every god is pleased. I shall recount what has happened to me, and what I have seen of your fame. You will be thanked in the city, in the presence of the officials. I shall slaughter oxen for you as a burnt offering. I will have ships brought to you, laden with all the products of Egypt, as should be done for a god who loves men in a far-off land which men do not know. End quote. The sailor is profusely glad for the serpent's words, and offers both respect and veneration. Like a good seafarer, he promises to tell of his adventures, and bring the snake's existence to other people's awareness. But how did the snake respond to such flattery? Quote, then he laughed at me for what I have said, which seemed foolish to him. He said to me, You do not have myrrh, although you have become an owner of incense. I, little one, am the prince of Punt. Myrrh belongs to me. The oil which you said you would bring, that is the main product of this island. Now, it shall happen that when you have removed yourself from this place, you will never see this island again, for it will be submerged beneath the waves. End quote. Ah, the eternal island of myth. Once found, never found again, for it sinks beneath the sea when the traveller leaves it. If you wanted to interpret this kind of place philosophically, you might suggest that the island represents a place of indulgence, of childhood, with every good thing, but its wealth is a temptation to ensnare, and the traveller who gains wisdom or remembers the value of their home leaves, watching self-indulgence and idleness disappear forever behind them. This would be a very popular idea during the reign of Kakao Rei. As we saw in episode 43, literature from the time placed a premium value on hard work and avoiding idleness. For high-ranking members of Egyptian society, this description of the snake's kingdom and the sailor's inability to return there would be essential reminders that idleness and indulgence is for the past. It is for children. In the Egyptian world, the present belong to those who commit themselves to virtue and restraint and effectual work. The sailor is now to be rescued from his isolation, and the snake's words come true, as only a god's words can. Quote, then that boat returned, as he had predicted earlier. I went and set myself on the top of a tall tree, and I recognized those who were within it. Then I went to report this, and I found the snake knowing it already. He said to me, In good health, little one, off to your house. You shall see your children. Make a good reputation for me in your city. This is my only request from you. I placed myself upon my belly, my arms bent in his presence. He gave me a load of myrrh, of oil, laudanum, spice, cinnamon, 
eye paint, giraffe's tails, incense, ivory, hounds, apes, baboons, and all fine products. I loaded them onto the boat, and I was prostrate thanking him. He said to me, You shall reach the palace in two months, and you will fill your arms with your children. You will become young again at home, until your burial. End quote. The sailor sets out on his countryman's ship, and makes his return to the shores of Egypt. Quote, we sailed north to the palace of the king, and we reached the palace in two months, according to everything the serpent had said. I entered before the king, and I presented him with the gifts which I had brought from the island. He thanked me before all the officials. I was made a companion, and granted two hundred servants. See me after I landed, after I have seen what I experienced. Listen to my words. It is good for men to listen. End quote. The sailor makes it home, and resolves to share his story with the king and with society at large. He recounts his lesson, which can be described simply. Pursue wisdom, and attain honour above all things. But the captain, to whom we now return, is having none of it. Quote, then the commander said to me, Do not be so proper, friend. What is the use of giving water to the bird at daybreak, when it is to be killed in the morning? It has come from its beginning to its end, as found in writing, in the writing of the scribe, skilled with his fingers. Armeni I, son of Armeni, may he live in life, prosperity, and health. The End The Shipwrecked Sailor is one of the very few tales to survive in a pretty much complete form. Quite lucky, all things considered, given that many tales are missing their ending, and thus their conclusion. The commander seems to be determined that he is going to be punished on his return to the palace. Perhaps his trade expedition has been unsuccessful. It's not clear, but he seems doggedly resigned to his fate. It's hardly surprising, then, that the sailor says at the beginning of the tale, Talking to you is tiresome, but I think the commander's refusal to take this advice has some deeper significance as well. Sure, he is being obstinately miserable, but it also shows that there is a flip side to the snake's advice. One must share their wisdom, as he says, and relate their experiences for the knowledge and benefit of others. But also, one should not expect others to take that advice, or value it as highly as you do. For this is the nature of human diversity, as our minds are each somewhat unique, and cannot truly be understood by any other person. It is inevitable that the advice which inspires one person will have little effect on another. That is simply a part of life. The sailor is taught this at the end, although we don't actually see him learning it, because the story ends so abruptly. So, if anything, it's a lesson for the audience the final word that leaves the story on an educational but cautionary note. If we wanted to distill the lessons of the shipwrecked sailor down to their essence, we might summarize it thus. Be of strong heart, and do not stop living when grief assails you. Continue in your journey, and when you pass through difficulty or need comfort, speak of your experiences to others, share your knowledge, and seek to complement it with theirs. But do not think you can know all, or can foresee the future, for that belongs only to the divine. Take counsel from others, 
and give your own in return. But know that the lessons you cherish may not be those which give others comfort. Each individual takes their journey for themselves, and is driven by their own unique sensations and emotions. At the end, it is your responsibility to share your wisdom, but we cannot expect to lead another. I have to stress that this is my own interpretation, and I'm very curious to know whether the story resonates with you in a different way. The Shipwrecked Sailor, although largely forgotten by the Western canon of literature, endures today as one of the earliest works in the genre of seafarers. From Odysseus to Aeneas, Sinbad, the ancient mariner, and Ishmael, the tale has reverberated subtly through stories of ocean wanderers for millennia. It is rarely evoked consciously, but the shipwrecked sailor nevertheless marks one of the earliest compositions which shows how land-bound humans conceived of the ocean as a seemingly endless space of ever-shifting waters and unknowable depths. The ocean has had a powerful hold on the human psyche since the earliest days of human wandering. For the eponymous sailor of this tale, it was a place in which one encountered the awesome power of the divine, the utter impossibility of foretelling the future, and places of solitude in which wisdom, true wisdom, might be gained. But the ocean gives an obligation to all of those who travel it. The obligation to impart knowledge, to shun easy, idle abundance in favour of the soul-enlivening joys of good work, a caring family, and the sanctity of ending one's life at home in the land of your birth.
What follows is a complete reading of The Shipwrecked Sailor, as it is found in its single surviving source, a papyrus found by accident in St. Petersburg in the late 19th century. The translation I have given here is that of William Kelly Simpson. Then the able retainer spoke. Be of good cheer, Commander. We have now reached home. The mallet has been taken off, the mooring post driven in. The bowline has been cast ashore. Praise has been offered, and God has been thanked. Every man embraces his comrade. Our shipmates have returned safe, without loss to our expedition. After we reached the limits of Wawat, we passed the island of Senmet. See us now, we are returning safely, and we are reaching our land. Listen now to me, Commander. I do not exaggerate. Wash up. Place water on your fingers, so you can reply when you are questioned, so you can speak to the king with confidence, so you can answer without stammering. The speech of a man can save him, and his words can cause indulgence for him. Yet do only as you wish, for speaking to you is tiresome. Now I shall tell you something similar, which happened to me myself. I went to the mining region for the sovereign, I went down to the Great Green. In a ship 120 cubits long and 40 cubits wide. 120 sailors were aboard from the best of Egypt. Whether they looked at the sky or looked at the land, their hearts were braver than lions. They could tell a storm before it came and a tempest before it happened. But a storm came up while we were on the Great Green before we could touch land, and the wind picked up and howled. A wave of eight cubits was in it. As for the mast, I grasped it. Then the ship died, and of those who were in it, there did not remain a single one. I was placed on an island by a wave of the great green, and I spent three days alone, with my heart as my companion. I lay down within a shelter of wood, and I embraced the shade. Next, I stretched my legs to find what I could put in my mouth. There I found figs and grapes and all kinds of good vegetables. Sycamore figs were there together with notched ones and cucumbers as if they were cultivated. Fish were there with fowl. There was nothing that was not in it. Then I gorged myself and I put some on the ground because of the abundance in my hands. I removed the fire drill when I had lighted a fire, and I made a burnt offering to the gods. Next, I heard the sound of thunder, and I thought it was a wave of the great green. The trees were shaking, and the ground was quaking. When I uncovered my face, I found it was a serpent about to come. He was thirty cubits long, and his beard was larger than two cubits. His body was covered with gold, his eyebrows were of real lapis lazuli, and he was coiled up in front. He opened his mouth to me while I was on my belly in front of him. He said to me, Who has brought you? Who has brought you, little one? Who has brought you? If you delay in telling me who has brought you to this island, I shall have you know yourself as ashes turned into someone invisible. He spoke to me, but I could not hear, 
while I was before him, I did not know myself. Then he set me in his mouth, and took me to his resting place. He set me down without touching me. I was intact without his taking anything from me. He opened his mouth toward me, while I was on my belly before him. Then he said to me, Who has brought you, who has brought you, little one? Who has brought you to this island of the great green, the two sides of which are under water? Then I answered him, my arms bent before him. I said to him, It was I who came down to the mining country on a mission of the sovereign, in a ship one hundred and twenty cubits long and forty cubits wide. One hundred and twenty sailors were in it from the best of Egypt. Whether they looked at the sky or looked at the land, their hearts were braver than lions. They could tell a storm before it came. Each one of them, his heart was braver and his arm more valiant than his companions. There was no fool among them. Then a storm came forth while we were on the great green, before we could set to land. The wind picked up and kept on howling. A wave of eight cubits was in it. As for the mast, I grasped onto it. Then the ship died, and of those who were in it, not a single one remained except for me. See me now at your side. Next I was placed on this island by a wave of the great green. Then he said to me, Do not fear, do not fear, little one. Do not turn white, for you have reached me. See, God has allowed you to live. He has brought you to this island of the car. There is not anything which is not in it. It is filled with all fine things. See, you shall spend month after month until you complete four months within this island. A boat shall return from the residence, sailors in it whom you know. You shall go with them to the residence, and you shall die in your town. How joyful is one who relates what he has experienced, after painful matters have passed by. I shall now relate to you something similar, which took place on this island, when I was on it with my siblings. We amounted to seventy-five serpents, including my children and my brothers and sisters, without my mentioning to you a little daughter brought to me through wisdom. Then a star fell, and because of it they went up in fire. It happened utterly, but I was not with them when they burned. I was not among them. Then I died for them when I found them as a single heap of corpses. If you would be brave and your heart strong, you will fill your arms with your children. You will kiss your wife when you see your house. It is better than anything. You will reach home where you were among your siblings. I was stretched out on my belly. I touched the ground in his presence. But I said to him, I shall relate your might to the sovereign. I shall have him learn of your greatness. I shall have brought to you laudanum, oil, spice, balsam, and incense of the temples, with which every god is pleased. I shall tell what has happened to me, and what I have seen of your fame. You will be thanked in the city. In the presence of the officials of the entire land, I shall slaughter oxen for you as a burnt offering. I will have the necks of fowl ringed for you. I shall have barges brought to you, 
laden with all the products of Egypt, as should be done for a God who loves men, in a far-off land which men do not know. Then he laughed at me for what I had said, in his opinion foolishly. He said to me, You do not have much myrrh, although you have become an owner of incense. I am, sir, the Prince of Punt. Myrrh belongs to me. That oil which you said will be brought, it is the main product of this island. Now, it shall happen when you separate yourself from this place. You will never see this island again, since it will be submerged under the waves. Then that boat returned, as he had predicted before. I went up and set myself on top of a tall tree, and I recognized those who were in it. Then I went to report it, and I found him knowing it already. He said to me, In good health, in good health, little one, off to your house. You shall see your children. Make a good reputation for me in your city. This is my only request to you. I placed myself upon my belly, my arms bent in his presence. He gave me a load of myrrh, oil, laudanum, spice, cinnamon, aromatics, eye paint, giraffe tails, large cakes of incense, ivory tusks, hounds, apes, baboons, and all fine products. Then I loaded them onto the boat, and I was placed on my belly to thank him. He said to me, You shall reach the residence in two months. You shall fill your arms with your children. You will become young again at home until your burial. Then I went down to the shore in the vicinity of this boat, and I called out to the expeditionary force which was in the boat. I gave praise upon the shore to the lord of the island, and those who were in it likewise. We sailed north to the residence of the sovereign, and we reached the residence in two months, according to everything he had said. Then I entered before the sovereign, and I presented him with these gifts, which I had brought from within the island. Then he thanked me before all the officials of the entire land. I was appointed retainer, and granted two hundred servants. See me after I have landed, after I have seen what I experienced. Listen to my words, it is good for men to hearken. Then the commander said to me, Do not be so proper, friend. What is the use of giving water to the fowl at daybreak, when it is to be killed in the morning? It has come from beginning to end as found in writing. In the writing of the scribe, skilled with his fingers, Armeni's son, Armeni Aya, may he live, prosper, and be in health.